This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today, we are interviewing Cam Sholley, superintendent of Yellowstone National Park. Cam is the son of Dan Sholley, who was chief ranger in Yellowstone during the Great Fire of 1988. So Cam spent his boyhood growing up in Yellowstone. Previously, Cam was director of the National Park Service's Midwest region, where he managed a team of 2,000 employees and supervised operations of 61 national park units in 13 states. While Midwestern Director Sholley oversaw the decision to reintroduce wolves to Isle Royale, Royale National Park. He also established a regional office of American Indian Affairs to build stronger tribal relations across the region. He's now been Yellowstone Superintendent for the past four years, supervising a team over over a thousand employees and volunteers with an annual budget of more than sixty million dollars. In a park that spans over 2 million acres and sees more than 4 million visitors each year, uh, we're glad to welcome Cam to our program today. So welcome, Cam. It's good to be talking to you. We did this uh, four years ago, I think. Uh, Here we are again. Yeah, thank you, Jay. It's been been a long four and a half years, uh, (laughs) and it's uh, lots happened, a lot between COVID and, and the floods and everything, right. we're looking forward to talking to you. Well, let's start by talking about the floods. Uh, so uh, just just tell us, what uh, uh, was flooding confined to the north, just to the northeast corner of the park or all over? Well, the biggest impacts of the flood from last summer, uh, from last June, were in the north north end of the park. Um, a couple re- couple reasons for that. Primarily, we, we, we had more snow in April, May last, last year than we did in January, February, and March combined. Uh, so we had late, late snowfall followed by uh, a substantial amount of rain right. and warming temperatures, which released somewhere between eight and nine inches of water um, over a couple-day period, which, which caused the flood. Most of that happened in the northern end of the park. So it ran over for two day, two days or more. Well, I mean that rain event. I think that the flood happened Sunday night into Monday of the the twelfth and thirteenth of of June. Uh, I think it started raining on Friday pretty heavily. Uh, you know that rain landed on fresh snow with warming temperatures and right. melted it very quickly. And uh, we saw uh, an unprecedented flood uh, on the thirteenth. Do you know how? Uh... Do you know how much rain actually fell in inches? I think the uh, the rainfall total was somewhere around three to four inches, but it melted about five inches of snow. Oh wow! So um, you know, however you want to calculate that, it ended up being you know a substantial amount of precipitation uh, and melt all at the same time. So, uh, did you lose any cultural resources uh, in that uh, downpour and the flooding? Well, we didn't lose any cultural resources uh, per se. I mean, generally speaking, we came out of that flood event about as good as we could have when you consider 
the number of resources in this park, natural, cultural, geologic. Uh-huh. We've lost, uh, you know, as most people know, major segments of the Northeast Entrance Road and the right, North Entrance right. Road and some wastewater capacity. But, you know, generally speaking, it, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, especially considering we could have had a major loss of life if it were not for the actions of the team here uh-huh. proactively closing those roads before they washed out. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And none of the buildings around Mammoth were uh, were affected, is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah most of the uh, road road damages was the main the biggest impact. And none of the thermal features in the park were uh, affected by it. No. Okay. No. They mm-hmm. the, the resources fared very well. We had some concerns last summer that in the Slough Creek drainage in the Lamar River our our cutthroat trout fish counts were lower than the previous oh. year. Um, the second count we did last year, they rebounded a little bit. So we were a little bit worried early in the season last year that we might have had a large number of, of fish washed downstream oh. or downriver. Um, but we'll we'll look at the the count this year and uh, kind of see what that uh, what that impact was from year to year. And was there any effect on vegetation? You know, I, I, the re- vegetation here is very resilient. Uh-huh. Um, I, I'd say for people that looked at the floods right after it happened, it looked like there was a lot of impacts on vegetation. The, the, the reality is that there wasn't. Uh, there was definitely some changes in how the, the, the rivers are channeled. Um, but I think you're going to see a nice rebound uh, this season uh, coming up uh, from a vegetation and, and some other perspectives. Uh-huh. Were there any observable effects from uh, the heavy rainfall on the wildlife? No, the wildlife fared very well. We got that question a lot. Uh, oh, did uh, not have uh, substantial impacts on, on any wildlife species in the park. Well, uh, cubs and uh, uh, calves were, were uh, produced in the springtime, so I would think that uh, it might have some effect on the on the little, on the the young animals. Not, yeah, we didn't not, we did not notice significant drops in our population counts. So uh, I'm not saying there was no impacts on any of the species, but we did not see any uh, noticeable dramatic impacts on on any species. Uh huh. Uh, and uh, it it caused the park to shut down. Uh, uh, how long how long were you closed down? When it, when it first happened, obviously we needed a couple of days. We, we basically evacuated the entire north end of the park uh-huh. uh, that first morning, and then a couple hours into the day, we realized the extent of the damage that there was uh, some some not not quite as bad a damage in the south end as the uh-huh. north end. We decided to go ahead and clear the entire park. We evacuated uh-huh. uh, ten or twelve thousand visitors in about uh-huh. twenty four hours. Wow, uh, was a was a, a process. Uh, in and of itself, but uh, you know that gave us some time to kind of assess what the real damage was, where it was, and we realized fairly quickly that in that first couple of days after the flood, that most of the damage or most of the heaviest damage was in the north end of the park, and so we kind of set that aside as our our primary flood recovery zone. Mm-hmm. We realized that the south end of the park was less damaged or mm-hmm. more easily repairable. And so we called that kind of our operations recovery zone. 
really looking to try to get that park opened as quickly as possible where it was possible. So we were able to open the South Loop within eight okay. days. And that's that's uh, down right uh, Old Faithful. That's the road, the south end of the Grand Loop, which is mm-hmm. Canyon, Old Faithful, Lake, oh. North, those areas. Oh. And so we had, uh, uh, around 20 days, we had about, we opened the North Loop. So we had over 90% of the park's road mileage open within about 20 days. And then we had about 94% of the backcountry opened within the first month. So the team did a excellent job assessing what the damage was, really compartmentalizing and we worked a lot with the communities and the counties and the states and our other stakeholders to come up with the right approach to uh, reopen in, in a way that was safe. And while we continue to do uh, recovery and repair work up north. And um, was the level of the lake uh, raised as a result of the rainfall? Yeah, the lake did go up, but that lake is so big, uh, it actually kind of served as a modulator in some oh. ways. Most people know the Yeltsin River flows north from right. uh, into the lake and then uh, flows out uh, toward Canyon. Uh, the water level definitely increased, but we did not have the same type of kind of violent hydrology on the south end of the park that we saw on the north end. So let's talk about the road uh, between Gardner and Mammoth. Uh, that's where the that's where severe damage occurred. And the road was washed out. Uh, did so? How uh, how many places did the road wash out there? There's five kind of major sections that are blown out. One in particular that uh, is about 800 feet and is. Uh, you know, for, for a lot of the viewers that have been here in the park, when you come in the north entrance, it's a couple miles up the road into right. the canyon. Right. There's an area there where the, the bighorn sheep like to hang out. People like to stop. Uh, that section is, is the most problematic because we've got such a steep upslope right. and cliff there. Uh, we had engineers on the ground fairly quickly within days of the flood event. They determined there was no quick way to repair those damaged sections uh, in the Gardner Canyon. So we started looking at other alternatives, which is where we landed on uh, improving and expanding the old Gardner Road from a one-lane dirt road to a two-lane paved road. That was the fastest way to reconnect Mammoth to Gardner. You know, I've driven that road. uh, So uh, how did you get construction on it going so quickly? that's upslope from from Mammoth itself, and then on, on over the the hill or the mountain to uh, Gardner. Well, it's the epitome of a team effort. Uh, the old Gardner Road, an 1879 stagecoach road. For those that haven't been on it, it's about a ten. It was about ten foot wide, twelve foot wide dirt road. Right. Um, not really a maintained road. Uh, we did let light traffic travel one way uh, during the summer, late summer months. Um, you know, if someone wanted to drive from Mammoth down to Gardner, we would let them do that. But it was not a, mm-hmm. a full access road by by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we looked at that uh, as the the best, like I said, the best short term option to reconnect to Gardner. We were fortunate to have great partners like the Federal Highway Administration uh, on uh, with us. They do a lot of work with us in the park, especially on roads projects. 
we had a major contractor that was on a very large road project between West Thumb and Old Faithful. They were in the park with their equipment, with their material, and we were able to divert them from that project down south and bring them up and get to work on the Old Gardner Road. Before that happened, we had the Park Service road crews uh, put about 20,000 tons of material on that dirt road to make it more passable for one-way traffic. So the Park Service team really did a terrific job in the first two weeks to at least reestablish one-way access back and forth the gardener while we worked on the two-lane plan with Federal Highways and the contractor HK. So now you have a two-lane road running between Gardner and Mammoth? Yep, just at about, we started the two-lane process. What happened June 13th, our crews worked on it to get it to kind of a one-lane passable dirt road or gravel road by uh, early July, and then HK contractors uh, began the two-lane process on July 6th, and they were finished with it, including two paved lanes. A lot of engineering went into it in a very short amount of time mm-hmm. by uh, the first part of November. So that was a, a terrific job. We were lucky to have uh, good weather through October. Uh, it's really lucky that we also finished when we did because we ended up having several feet of snow in November. And so... Uh, it, that was a, a tremendous effort by both the park uh, and Federal Highways and the contractors. And will that now be the permanent road uh, leading down from Gardner into into Mammoth? Yeah, it's a regular question that we get. I, you know, we we spent twenty five million dollars on that road in four months. Uh, it would be a shame to not use. Uh, some portions of that for the long term. That road was built, even though it's engin- engineered well, it was built very quickly. There are there was not time to take out a lot of the great steep grades and sharp curves uh, that you'd want to see in a modern road. It'll do fine for us as a temporary road, but we're looking at a range of alternatives mm-hmm. uh, to including going back to the canyon. We'll we'll look at that, analyze it. I'm not sure we'll go that direction, but we've got, you know, about three alternatives that we're looking at, including kind of a hybrid of what we've built on the old Gardner road. And we'll be making that determination as we proceed through the year, there'll be a public comment process, uh, uh, a, a national environmental policy act uh, process that we go through that'll allow people to really kind of see the different alternatives that we're, we're looking at. One of the problems with that section of, of road is there's a significant glacial shift of, of soil coming from the west to the east, and that uh, could prove problematic mm. for stability reasons. So whatever road that we decide or whatever uh, alignment that we decide on, we need to make sure is engineered properly for the long term and can deal with, uh, you know, some of these substantial shifts in, in, in soil sliding that we're seeing in that, in that area. Now, there's a herd of elk that uh, hangs around Mammoth area, and uh, I've noticed they move up onto, onto that slope above Mammoth. Uh, so is the, has the new road uh, caused any displacement of, uh, of those elk? No, I mean, I would argue that we have not seen any displacement. I mean, anytime you build a road, there's obviously going to be uh, things that you want to pay attention to from a wildlife uh, perspective. 
what I will say is that the wildlife viewing for people coming up that road right now is probably some of the best. You see a lot more wildlife than you did coming up through the canyon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there have not been any real noticeable negative impacts on elk or bison or some of the other species that transcend that corridor. And then the other road that uh, was uh, impacted by the flooding is, was the road between Cook City uh, and Tower Junction. So uh, how badly was that affected, and uh, what was the, the replacement time? Well, that one's equally impressive. A uh, company called Oftedal, um was the main contractor in that corridor, uh, about three, well, there were three major kind of sections that blew out in that in the northeast entrance road, and then another section that uh, where the Lamar River basically cut undercut the road, and that road had to be moved uh, moved over. Mm. Often, all got to work. Uh, I think around August 9th, uh, repairing those three major damage sections. And they were completed by October 15th, and they did a terrific job. The work that they did there, we've been calling it, you know, temporary. Uh, the reality is it would probably cost us $20 million to undo what we did there last year. They, those are permanent fixes. Uh, they're going to continue to work uh, as soon as the snow melts here a little bit more on the Lamar Canyon section. For anyone that's traveled the road over the winter, we have a one-way traffic light for about 500 yards. We're going to continue to move that road away from that. Uh, it's about an 80-foot embankment uh, where the river cut out there. Um, that that work will continue through the summer, and then we're looking at that entire corridor for any other vulnerable areas that we might have that we didn't lose in the event last year. And we're going to work really hard to protect those areas of road that. Uh, maybe uh, survive last year's floods that might be vulnerable to something in the future so we don't have another situation like we did last summer. Uh, and uh, uh, we're, that's wolf country. Were, were any wolves uh, uh, affected by that, by that construction going on? No. Okay. No, we, they did a great job. You know, the road corridors are, I mean, if anything, in my several overflights, over the Lamar and looking at damage last summer. Um, I think the wildlife were enjoying not having any visitors around. Um, I saw multiple bison laying on the road, and, of course, there was no no traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally speaking, uh, while they probably enjoyed not having that many people around, there were no – we were very careful uh, with how we did the, the repairs, and there were no – impacts on on wildlife those people who live out in cook city and silvergate on that northeast entrance area they were isolated for a period of time weren't they well actually gardner and cook city was uh when the flood originally happened you know gardner the river was over the the road at yankee jim canyon on highway 89 so visitors and, and residents were trapped in gardner fortunately that road the water receded by I think Tuesday or Wednesday, and, and the road to Livingston was reopened. Similarly, uh, there was issues with uh, the road between uh, through the plug between Cook City um, and uh, 212. So that got cleared up. They did some good repairs there temporarily there in, in Cook City and Silvergate that allowed traffic to uh, get out the other side toward Cody. 
Um, but they were not able, unlike Gardner, where we were able to get one-way traffic up and down for administrative. And later we got a lot of the guides and some of the outfitters and, and that kind of thing up from Gardner. We were unable to do that for for Cook City because of the extent of the damage on, on the road there. We did uh, ultimately allow uh, bicyclists and hikers and some others to come in the six miles through the northeast entrance to the first area that was made was damaged. But yeah, it was a tough summer for both of these communities. Uh, they were both uh, incredible partners, um, a, a very resilient group. We were all hoping to have a a kind of post-COVID normal year last summer, and this was a curveball thrown thrown to us, uh, you know, in the middle of June. Which, uh, when you're a, a business owner, where when you're sitting in an economy that relies almost 100% on Yellowstone tourism, uh, it was a very very tough year for them, and you know, uh, we worked very closely with these communities on communications, on timelines, and I think that. In a lot of ways, COVID helped. I mean, three years ago, the park was closed because of COVID, because we got requests from the states to keep the park closed. Uh, we've always had good relations with the counties and the communities and states, but COVID really kind of helped us solidify a lot of communications uh, with these critical groups. And so when the flood happened, you know, it was pretty easy for us to just kind of get into a regular communications rhythm with with the communities for updates and those types of things, but uh, no ch- no question, it was a very challenging summer for everybody, especially up north here. Oh yeah, uh, were there any other roads that were affected uh, by rain and flooding? Well, we had several campgrounds that were affected, especially in the north end. Uh, we did have some damage to the roads on the south end, but like I said, those were minor and pretty easily repairable. We got those fixed very quickly. Um, overall, the biggest damage was the northeast entrance corridor I just spoke about, mm-hmm. and, and obviously the north entrance between here and Gardner. That was the the vast majority of the damage we did. And we have eight, eight wastewater systems here in the park that we manage. Here in Mammoth, we w- we did not have our own sy- a system in Mammoth. We we ran our wastewater through a pipe under the road to Gardner's system. That pipe was also severed in four or five locations, and that required us to come up with some temporary uh, solutions for wastewater generated uh, here in Mammoth. And the team did, once again, a a great job of diverting it. You know, when the flood happened, there was around 200,000 gallons per day of wastewater flowing into the Gardner River. Uh, That was turned off very quickly and, and redirected into a temporary system, and then we've been uh, constructing another temporary system over the winter, which should hopefully be done here in the next month, month and a half or so, uh, that will will allow us to fully reopen all the services here in Manus. Uh You didn't have any washouts on Mount Washburn on that road? No. Okay. Yeah, and the fortunate because that the, you know, we just, finished that two-year project. It was about $30 million. That road looks fantastic. Really? We just reopened it literally last spring before the flood. Uh-huh. And one of the initial reports that we got was that, that that road was washed out, which I was highly disappointed considering we just finished it. But it turned out to be wrong, fortunately, and uh-huh. that road was largely unaffected. Oh, uh, well, I'll be interested in going over there. 
Uh, yeah, it's good. They did, they did a great job on that project. Let me ask you about volcanic activity. Uh, have there been any recent uh, hot springs or fumaroles or geysers that have emerged in the park? I haven't heard of any real new ones. Um, you know, we've had, I mean, this is a volcano that if it goes off, it's going to be over real quick for those of us here in Yellowstone. Um, there's no, no, no projections that's going to happen. We do have, you know, we did regularly get notified of, of swarms of smaller quakes and things like that. Um, I, you know, the, the best experts tell us that, you know, we're a very, very long way away from uh, the volcano going off. Uh, I have not seen any new geysers or, or any any new um, geyser activity. I'm sure some of that happens uh, here and there. Well, faithful, still faithful, still on a 90-minute clock, um, plus or minus 10 minutes. Uh, you know, steamboat geyser, I think uh, three years ago we had a record number of eruptions that has uh, been erupting less frequently uh, this year and last year. Uh, but you know, one of the things we're focused on from a geothermal standpoint is that that is a main attraction of people coming here to visit Yellowstone. And we've got somewhere between seven to ten million dollars to invest in the boardwalks. Uh, you know, the boardwalks that we have are in disrepair. There's a lot of deferred maintenance there, uh-huh. and it's probably one of the most important resource protection tools that we have because people truly enjoy the geologic features of this park uh-huh. and the boardwalk do a good job of protecting the geologic resources from the people and keeping them safe. Uh, and we're, we're making some significant investments in improving, uh, not expanding really, but improving boardwalk structures uh, to make sure that they can still uh, the visitation coming to the park and still uh, protect the resources adequately. Well, conversely, uh, are there any, any of those uh, features that have gone dormant? Uh, no, I, I don't. I, it, there's there's half the world, you know, geysers and in, in thermal features in Yellowstone. So I don't I don't have an inventory of all of them, but not, none none that are well known to uh, the visitors. Uh-huh. Uh, everything still very active. Yeah. Okay. Uh, have you noticed any changes in the wildlife populations and and its behavior since you've been in the park? I think we've done a good job. You know, last year was the 150th anniversary of Yellowstone. I've said this to many forums. You know, if you think about 150 years ago and the, the health of the, of the ecosystem back then, 100 years ago we were killing wolves and killing mountain lions and reducing the grizzly population. And I think we wiped out the bison population down to less than 25 animals. And then you fast forward to, to now, um, you know, grizzlies are that have, uh, have recovered greatly. Um, wolves are thriving. Uh, the bison populations, you know, five to six thousand. Mountain lions are back. Uh, we're investing record amounts of money into native fish restoration, doing a great job of combating aquatic invasive species like lake trout and, and others. Um, overall, I would suggest that uh, the, the health of the Yellowstone ecosystem currently. I know there's a lot of people out there that uh, differ with this opinion to some degree, but based on the wildlife biologist assessments of the health of the, of the ecosystem, it's better now than than it has been since Yellowstone was a park. It doesn't mean that there's not challenges and there's not threats. 
uh, to the population, climate change and other things. But um, I think we've done a really good job of putting the pieces back together of this ecosystem, especially over the last 50 years. If you think about even in the 60s, we were feeding grizzly bears and black bears out of garbage dumps. Mm. And we've come a we've come a long way, and we continue to make really important investments in maintaining, sustaining, improving the condition of uh, the ecosystem as a whole, and not just here in the core of Yellowstone, but working with uh, our federal partners like the Forest Service, Park Service, the state, the uh, private landowners to do a better job of stewardship in, in the areas surrounding Yellowstone as well. Well, Cam, uh, we've run out of time, but I uh, appreciate talking to you today. It's been great. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, we're going to continue it next week and uh, uh, talk about wildlife and some other subjects about Yellowstone. Our guest today has been Cam Shawley, superintendent of Yellowstone National Park. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.